Uh, This week, one of the local news programs uh, from Seattle did an interview with a member of the Seattle Fire Department who was retiring after 40 years as a Seattle firefighter, 35 of those as a paramedic, which is really not a small thing. The the paramedic business is is really quite demanding uh, emotionally as well as mentally. When they asked what was memorable from more than 14,000 calls that he went on, he said, well, when you get to a call and someone is basically dead, and then you drop them off at the hospital alive, that's pretty good. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Shortly after I became a volunteer firefighter, I became an emergency medical technician, which, you know, an EMT is here and a paramedic is there, just in case they aren't the same uh, by a long shot. Back then, EMTs got 100 hours of class time and 10 hours of observation and take a couple of tests and they slap that patch on your uniform and you're good to go on medical calls. And shortly after I became certified, I got a call and I went to the fire station and and I was the first one there so I got in the aid car and got out on the deck and warmed it up and I'm waiting for the rest of the people to come and nobody came they did a second call and nobody came and the guy who ran the gas station across the street was a captain in the fire department and he came and said you better go and I thought by myself (laughs) I think it was the first medical call that I went on And I thought, okay. Now the first problem back then, and Chet will appreciate this, was the houses out out in District 1 didn't have numbers. They had rural mailbox numbers. How many of you remember the rural mailbox number as your address? You got box one and box two, and when the house in the middle came, it was 1A, or it was 2B, or whatever. And so I thought, oh God, please help me to find this place. And I'm driving out there, so I found the place. And then I thought, oh, God, help me to do the right thing. And I didn't tell the lady with the heart problem it was my first call. (laughs) Okay, now what did I learn in class? And I tried to do what I learned, and thankfully the paramedics showed up very soon after I got there. And they said I did fine because her problem wasn't that severe. How do you know... When you've really learned something, how do you know when you've really learned something? This is a concept that the Apostle Paul is going to address as he talks about the issue mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The believers at Corinth sent some questions to Paul, and one of them was mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, now concerning things offered to idols. And you'll see the rest of this as we work through the passage. But they had a question about what their relationship should be to food that had previously been sacrificed to an idol. And to us, it might seem like a very open and shut case, but the Apostle Paul is actually going to use three chapters of the Bible to answer this question. And we're going to consider a thought here from chapter 8 today Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. We all know things. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up or edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing as as he ought to know. 
But if anyone loves God, this one is known by God. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and the Father of whom are the Father of whom are all things, and we are for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with a consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Look at verse one. We all know... And then verse seven, there is not in everyone that knowledge. What is, the, the question here is this, what's the difference between knowledge and knowledge? It's the same word, that's not gonna help us. But he talks about consciousness and conscience, verse seven. There is not in everyone this, this knowledge, in other words, we all know that, he says in verses one through six, we all know that there's no such thing as an alternate God. I'm just gonna paraphrase it that way. And yet he says, but some people don't really get that knowledge because of their conscience. Warren Wiersbe summarizes the concept of conscience in the New Testament this way. Conscience is that internal court where our actions are judged and either approved or condemned. I think we all understand, <clears throat> honestly, the, the, you can scan the scriptures for this word and see how God uses it, and we're gonna look at one instance in just a minute. It's a little bit of a fuzzy concept, and yet the Apostle Paul appeals to it a number of times, including one time when he says, my conscience is clear, which means that in his internal court, he said, I, I know that I'm innocent. Wearsby bases his definition on these verses here. For when the Gentiles, that's a synonym for unbelievers, <clears throat> for unbelievers who did not grow up in the Jewish religion, when Gentiles who do not have the Old Testament law by nature do the things written in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, that conscience thing, who show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts either accusing or excusing them. Conscience, the idea of an internal awareness of what is right and what is wrong. Again, look at 1 Corinthians 8, in verse one, he says, we all have this knowledge, and the knowledge he talks about is verse four. He says, an idol is nothing. Verse six, there's one God. Verse seven, however, not everyone gets that. Not everyone has that. For some with a consciousness of the idol eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. And so I wanna ask the question today, how does knowledge, how does the knowledge in our head become the life-guiding conviction in our heart? And I wanna answer it this way, it's the result of genuine spiritual growth. It's the result of genuine spiritual growth. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter one. 
excuse me, <coughs> we're going to spend a bulk of our time in 2 Peter 1 understanding what it means to grow in the Lord, and then we're going to come back and apply that to 1 Corinthians 8. In 2 Peter 1, we read this, starting in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's God's word, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, since God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and are abounding or growing, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible to know about God and to be unproductive in that knowledge. You know, when you're talking to someone and they, you're saying that it works this way and this way and that way and that way, and they go, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And you're thinking, then why are you having a problem? Sometimes we're that way. Yeah, I know all about God. I know all about Christ. I know all about salvation. Great. The people in Corinth knew all about God and idols. And yet somehow, thank you, and yet somehow, somehow it wasn't getting all the way down into their heart. And the way that the knowledge of God becomes productive in our life is as it comes into our heart through spiritual growth. And so we understand in Second Peter that spiritual growth is enabled by salvation. Verses 1 through 4 make that clear. You cannot grow in Christ, you cannot live like God, you cannot demonstrate godliness without salvation. Grace and peace, verse 2, are multiplied to you in the knowledge of God as his divine power has given to us all things through knowing him, through being connected to him. And verse 5 talks about adding to your faith. Until you have personal faith in Christ as Savior, the Christian life is just like any other hobby you attempt to do. I have one golf club that I think is worth $300. When I uh, was in Tukwila, I started golfing a little bit, and when I left there as a going away present, a fella in the church bought me this really expensive, uh, I believe it's a three wood made out of metal, figure that out for you non-golfers. Um, so this is a $300 club. This is the kind of club that real golfers play with. And you know what it looks like when I hit a ball with that club? It does not look like real golf. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's an accessory. Golf, uh, I haven't golfed for a long time since I had shoulder surgery, obviously, and it's just an accessory in my life. It decorates my, my shed, you know. <laughs> Do you have golf clubs? Yeah. Do you like golf? Yeah, yeah. Are you a golfer? Uh, you know, 
Some people are Christians that way. You know the Lord? Yeah. You walk with the Lord? Yeah. You've got to know the Lord before you can walk with the Lord. His power, His power has given us what we need. It's not something we have within us. We have to know the Lord first. The highest value in our society is for people to pursue their own agenda. The highest value in the Christian life is to become like Christ. But it starts with knowing Christ. With knowing Christ and deciding we are going to walk with him. The life that is built by pursuing the stuff of the world is talked about in verse four. It's called the corruption that is in the world through lust. It's not my purpose today to convince you that the Christian life is the best way to live. It's more my purpose just to explain how that works. But I would just say this, and I love these two little phrases. God offers us to partake of the divine nature, and he offers us to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. And if you're doubting today whether or not the Christian life is really the best way to live, could I just ask you if you've read the newspaper lately? Could you show me in the paper where the way of life according to the world is working out to the benefit of people? You know, I never went to a tavern until I became a pastor. That's the God's honest truth. We didn't even eat in restaurants where they served liquor when I was a kid. I never went to a tavern until I became a pastor and an EMT and a chaplain. And I went there to pick up those who were dead drunk or just dead. And I didn't see how that manner of life is helping people. Maybe I missed it. Because I love you, I want to show you these verses. He who sows to his flesh reaps ruin. He who sows to the Spirit reaps everlasting life. And it starts with knowing Christ as Savior. You need to abandon whatever belief system you have otherwise and throw yourself on God and on Jesus Christ as the Savior who died to pay for your sin and give you a life that can result and will result in partaking of the divine nature. But that divine nature doesn't happen without our effort. Salvation happens without our effort. We believe in Christ and God changes us and implants the life of Christ. But once it's implanted, we have got to be working together with God to develop that spiritual life. And that's why we understand that spiritual growth is affected by obedience. The word virtue is here. It says, add to your faith, verse 5. It says, add to your faith virtue. The word virtue, essentially, it could be defined as as goodness or obedience or or moral excellence. And, you know, as I meditated on this week, I came up with the simplest sentence that might be one of the most profound things I've ever said. Spiritual growth happens as we respond to every situation in life 
with righteous thought and behavior. And you're thinking, well, yeah. It's so simple, but it's obviously really challenging because the challenging part is every situation. (laughs) We get up in the morning and we walk and we come to a situation where we could go left or right, you know, we could do the a sinful thing or the righteous thing. When we choose to walk in righteousness, we go forward with the Lord. There is no righteousness, excuse me, there is no spiritual growth without acts of righteousness. Every day we have situations that challenge us in regard to our righteousness. Raul was telling me this week about, about uh how he thinks about some of his responsibilities at work, and I asked him if I could share this, and, and he did. You know, he, he takes care of all the parking meters in Bellingham. He does not give out the tickets. <laughs> he does not do enforcement. That's somebody else, okay? So don't be mad at him about your ticket. Don't ask him to fix your ticket, because that would not fit this description, would it? <laughs> For you or him... I got a parking ticket, I had to pay it, you got to pay yours, I'll tell you what right now. He, but they're handling money all the time. And, and sometimes they're just handling money to test the machine because they have to fix the machine and, and so on. And he says, when I look at that money, I just look at it like it's washers or nuts and bolts. It's just part of the machinery, you, you know. And it occurred to me, every day he is tempted to steal. Every day. And you know what? Every day we are tempted to sin. Whether it's a sin of the thought, a sin of the action, every day. And what does it mean to grow in the Lord? It means I will respond to every situation with righteous thought and behavior. And as I work at doing that day by day by day. That's how I grow in the Lord. Every day we have an opportunity to speak in a godly way or to speak in an ungodly way. Every day we have an opportunity to obey or rebel. Every day we have an opportunity to think immoral or moral thoughts. And the very simple truth is this, when you choose to do right, you become more like Christ. When you choose to do wrong, you become less like Christ. And as I thought about that second statement, I thought, well, I'm not sure if you can regress as a Christian, but I know you can fail to go forward. And judging from some things I've seen In some people's lives, I would say you can regress. You can give up some ground you've taken, some things you've learned in the Christian life. The very most simple and yet profound thing we can understand today is spiritual growth happens with obedience. But then, of course, as we consider this every situation phrase, We have to say, you know, that's the problem. I come into situations and sometimes I don't know how to act. I don't know. That's the problem for the Corinthians. They lacked, some aspect of knowledge was lacking. They had some aspects, but not all of it. That's why he says here, add to your faith virtue or obedience or moral excellence and then add to that knowledge. Spiritual growth is expanded by knowledge. Your ability to say 
no to sin and yes to righteousness depends on your spiritual knowledge. The reason you ought to come to Sunday school and to church, to Awana if you're a kid, uh, or to you know whatever other venue you could learn the Bible, as well as studying it on your own every day, the reason, one of the great reasons for that is to know more so you can live more righteously. In Tukwila, uh, one Sunday, we had a, a young, young mother, I believe, single mother there with her child for the first time, and we talked after the service. She said, I'd like to make an appointment to come see you, and I said, fine. She came to see me, and she talked about her life and her challenges, and, and as it, it became real obvious at some point that she really did not know the Lord at all, like maybe she just wandered into church for the first time, and And she really didn't know Christ as her savior, so I shared the gospel with her, including what, you know, you're a sinner, Christ is the savior, and you know, I used the word sinner and sin and so on, and when I got all done, she said, what sin? Now, I've had a lot of skeptical questions in my day, but she honestly was saying to me, what is sin? She was so ignorant of God's truth that she didn't know what it meant to sin or to be a sinner. Now, obviously, a person like that who gets up in the morning and goes about their day, if, if, she were, if she were to just become a brand new believer in Christ with just a little bit of Bible input, she wouldn't know very many steps to take left or right. She, she would be kind of a blank screen. Most of us are quite a bit farther down the road from there. And we know a lot of the things that we ought to be doing and things that we ought not to be doing. But all of us need to be growing in our knowledge of God's truth so that we can grow in righteousness. Once we learn the truth, then the hard work begins because spiritual growth is exercised by self-control. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge, self-control. Boy, there's, there's something, you know, we, Pastor Dave, you could have gone all day without preaching about self-control. Yeah, let me, tell me about it. You see, because here, here's the deal, Christianity isn't just a mental exercise. Coming to church is not a spectator sport, it is a training ground. Okay? When, uh, when I took my EMT class, I, I like to go to class, I like to learn things, I've always been fascinated with the, you know, certain aspects of knowledge, and so I enjoyed that very much. But there came a day, <laughs> there came a day when they said, you're going, now figure it out. And there came many more days when I stood there looking at a patient thinking, okay, and trying to tick off the knowledge I learned in class. See, the point of going to EMT school is not to go to school. The point is to help people in their physical crises. The point of Christianity is not just a mental exercise. We must know the truth so we can do the truth. And that only happens by self-control. 
it does start in our mind, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Let your life be changed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, we do need to learn truth, and then we need to act on that truth. And in the estimation of the Apostle Paul, acting on that truth was challenging. Everyone who competes for the prize is disciplined or self-controlled in all things. He was using the illustration of athletics and comparing that to the Christian life. And he was talking about what we would call world-class athletes. And he said, the ones who get to those games have worked really hard to get there. It takes a lot of effort. Therefore, here's how I run, how I live the Christian life. Not with uncertainty. Here's how I fight. Not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. I discipline my body. I exercise self-control over my body. Um, I make my body my slave. I make my body my slave. Are you a slave to your body or is your body a slave to you? I would say if I was giving myself a score, I'd say sometimes it's one way and sometimes it's the other way. And, and for those of you who might even be newer to Christianity to think about the difference between you and your body, let me just offer this little uh, concept. When you die, if you die before the rapture occurs and we're taken to heaven you know, with a transformed body, everybody who dies before that, we know that the body dies and goes in the ground, but where does the person go? goes to heaven, okay? That's the, that's the you that I'm talking about when I say you and I need to control our body. I understand that we are a unified whole. God has created us to be a physical being and a spiritual being together, I get that, but I also understand that God says it's possible for me, the Christian person who lives in this carcass, to control it. There are desires that come from our physical body that must be controlled. And the Apostle Paul said, that's what I work at. He said, that's what he worked at. He disciplined his body. He made it his slave. The word subjection there, literally he says, I make my body my slave now, how do you take control? And again, it's not my intent to go too far afield here, but let me just say this. Self-control comes through planning, accountability, prayer, and a heart given to God. Planning, accountability, prayer, and a heart given to God. I plan to get to the office by a certain time. Sometimes I get here earlier, sometimes uh, occasionally something keeps me from that, but normally I have a plan. I don't get up in the morning and think, I wonder what I should do today. Hmm, you know what 
feels good, I think staying right here in this warm bed would feel the best. That's what my body says. Sometimes when I'm sitting in that chair in there, my body says, you know what would really be fun? Get up and go work on something in the building. That's what I'd like to do. That's what my body would like to do. It doesn't like sitting in that chair and focusing on the work that I'm supposed to be doing. Or sometimes, you know, there's all these different messages we get. We have to say, no, here's my plan. Here's my accountability if I need help with that plan. Here is my prayer to God for what I need to do. And here is my heart given to God. Spiritual growth is exercised by self-control, and then it's established by perseverance. It's really amazing as you would, I would challenge you to memorize these couple, two or three verses and just think down through the pattern that God has given us here. We, we get saved, we obey, we learn more, we make ourselves obey more, and then we persevere in that obedience. That's what James is talking about in James chapter one. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work. That's the same word as persevere here in our text. Why are we surprised that it's hard to develop Christ-like character? Why, you know, we're, we're sitting around thinking, oh, I want to be like Jesus, and then we think, why is that so hard? Well, you know why it's so hard? Because he is divine, <laughs> and you are human, he is infinite, you are finite, but he has put himself into us to make it possible. And yet, even be, though that he is in there, we have to do what the Apostle Paul said and take control of our body, take control of our life, and patiently patiently work, 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 day by day. And what happens eventually, eventually, all of that work begins to produce new character, new character. And some things that used to be really challenging aren't so challenging anymore because we've developed a new habit of character. But it doesn't stop there with perseverance. It continues on. And... Uh, we, we, we learn, we control, we develop character through doing things over and over, and then spiritual growth is exemplified by godliness. What do I mean by that? Well, the word godliness means to be like God, and uh, here, here is a, a verse where it's used without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. When we ask the question, what's it mean to be like God? We look at Jesus as our example. God was manifest in the flesh. Here we are in the flesh trying to live like God. God in the flesh. Our goal is to be like him. And I think what this does for the, for the passage is something like this. Sometimes we can start to think that the Christian life is a list of do's and don'ts. I don't do this, and I do that, and I don't do this, and I do that. The Corinthians seemed to be in that mode. And so they were looking for the Apostle Paul to take this meat sacrifice to idols issue and just plug it into a right or wrong on the listing. And I think what Paul was after in them is this word from 2 Peter 1, verse 
6, godliness, to be like God. The goal is not just a list of behaviors for us. The goal is for us to become like Christ. And in this whole process of growth, spiritual growth is encouraged by relationship. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we can grow up in all things from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, it causes growth. Maybe the reason you're not growing in Christ very much, very well, very quickly, is because you're not connected enough to people in the body of Christ who could help you. We all need mature believers from whom we can learn how to walk with Christ. What we're doing right now is one of those kind of situations where I have spent years and years studying God's word and trying to live it, and I'm sharing it with you. There's a value to that with me sharing with you. There's also a value with you sharing with each other. There is the value that each joint, literally each ligament, brings to this process. We all need mature believers from whom we can learn how to walk with Christ. One of the reasons fellowship is important is we need to interact with one another and share the stuff of life so that we can get the reflection of godly people on the stuff of our life. I know that's hard to do. I know it's hard to move to that next level of conversation, but to to be able to think deeply and talk deeply about the stuff of life with somebody else who's also trying to walk with the Lord. Uh, You know, I know at work people talk about their lives. But if you're talking to an unbeliever, I hope you're not looking for advice. Because they're just playing, it's completely innocent. Believe me, I'm not criticizing them. But they just don't know God's truth. We all need mature people to give us godly reflection. I was so excited this week because I threw some ministry connections and things that I'm working on in our fellowship. I reconnected with a couple of old acquaintances who are mature men in the Lord. One of them is going to come speak at our pastors and wives retreat next year. I'm excited for that. You know what I hope happens? I hope I get to spend some time with him. And maybe going forward, I get to spend some time with him other times, because I look at his life and I think, I need to be more like that and that and that in his life. We need relationship. When it says here, add to your perseverance, or add to your godliness, brotherly kindness, the whole idea of relationship, brotherly love, connection in the body of Christ. And then we get to the to the peak of this list, the epitome of spirituality is love. Spiritual growth is epitomized by love. It is the peak of the mountain as we would be climbing back. Turn with me back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I told you we were going to bring this definition back into our passage. 
We've just been looking at what it means to grow and how to grow. And, you know, he, he talks about the knowledge, and he talks about people's consciences, and look where he ends up at verse 13. And, and we're going to come back here in depth next week, but look where he ends up. Therefore, if, food makes, if the food sacrificed to idols, if that makes my brother to stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Is that a statement based on knowledge alone or based on knowledge lived out in love for others? That's where Paul wants them to, to arrive. It's, where, it's the destination he wants them to get to because that is the epitome of spiritual growth. And, and as we think through this process that Peter has written down, we, we, we work at knowledge and we work at self-control and perseverance and godliness and, and brotherly kindness or relationship. And then we work at sacrifice of letting go of ourselves and of building into other people. Paul was calling the Corinthians up to the pinnacle of spiritual life. Jesus said, the way that people will know you are my disciples is if you have love for one another. He didn't say they're going to know you're my disciples if you can quote this backwards and forwards. Now, that's really great and really valuable, but only if it's being lived out. Paul is in essence here in 1 Corinthians 8 saying love for others has to be the basis of your actions. It's what he also wrote in Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for God. The last thing that I want you to take you through today and ask you to think about is this. The goal of our Christian life is to honor God by loving people into and through the process of discipleship like Christ did. Do you remember what it was like for Christ to shepherd those 12 men who became apostles? I think sometimes we look back at the apostolic era and we go, oh, wouldn't it have been awesome to be there? I'm not so sure. Whoops, I guess I left those scriptures off. Let me read them for you. The disciples were with Jesus traveling through Samaria. And the people of Samaria did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said... Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. Another time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, 
Get behind me, Satan. Great fellas, really spiritually mature, right? When Jesus came to Capernaum and he was in the house, he asked the disciples, what is it you were arguing about on the road? And they kept silent, for on the road they were arguing among themselves as to who was the greatest. You're with the Son of God, and you're arguing about which one of you's the greatest? And one last example. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest, a great storm arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Can imagine him thinking, haven't you guys been paying attention? Walking around Israel for three years with the disciples was no easy thing for Jesus. But, and here's where we come back to love, he wasn't here for his own benefit. He was there to help them become godly men, and we are to be here to help others become godly people. That's what Paul is gonna urge on the Corinthian believers. We need to be about love carried out in a godly way. Love is the final characteristic mentioned because it is the summit of the mountain in the process of spiritual growth. We take all the other steps to get to the place where our actions are guided by the love of Christ. I was talking to a friend this week about woodworking and um, I shared something that I learned from a man who taught me about woodworking. He was a shop teacher many years ago and uh, this is when I was an adult and he was telling me a few things and he said, when I was in school we had a shop teacher named Mr. Hess. And he said, Mr. Hess was very exacting and he not only required us to put finish and make the top of the project good, he required us to finish underneath where it didn't even show and make the whole thing perfect. He said, we in our class began to call this kind of craftsmanship doing it Hess. The Corinthians were aimed at a minimal kind of Christianity. One focused on self, What's okay for me? What can I do? What are my restrictions? Paul challenged them to adjust their sights and focus on a maximal kind of Christianity, one we would call living like Christ. We say that phrase so simply, so glibly, and yet what is our standard? Is our standard all the way up there say, I am gonna live like Christ? I'm gonna crucify my sin nature, I'm gonna do this thing. Strong Christians make living like Christ their standard of personal evaluation. They make it their standard of growth. Heavenly Father, help us. Our body does push back against the stuff of the Christian life Help us.
Help us to do what the Apostle Paul said and to bring our bodies under discipline. Help us to grow in you so that our actions might be chosen based in love, not just based in what suits us according to the the minimal standard of what's right and wrong. Father, help us to practice what we have learned today, even as the service ends and we interact with one another and then go home to interact with our families. Help us to apply your truth in those situations. I pray in Christ's name, amen.